Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. We're the only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top headlines. The U.S. shares an alternative resolution for a temporary Gaza ceasefire. The House leaders launch a bipartisan AI congressional task force. The Supreme Court declines to hear a Trump legal ally sanctions appeal. Australia plans to build its biggest navy since World War II. South Korean doctors protest plans to add more physicians. Military leaders dissolve Guinea's government. The wife of Haiti's assassinated president is accused in his killing. Capital One reaches an agreement to acquire Discover. China launches a new passenger jet internationally. And a COVID vaccine study finds links to health conditions. Our top story, the U.S. shares a rival UNSC resolution for a temporary Gaza ceasefire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, Reuters, Al Arabia, The Times of Israel, The Guardian, and The Hill. After vetoing an Arab-backed U.N. Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in the Gaza Strip on Tuesday, the U.S. circulated a rival resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza as soon as practical, the release of Israeli hostages, and the lifting of restrictions on aid delivery. The U.S. resolution also underscored that Israel should not enter Rafah, in which around half of the Strip's 2.3 million population are taking refuge along the border. Quote, under current circumstances, citing the possibility of harm to civilians and the exodus of Palestinians into neighboring countries. Meanwhile, Hamas political leader Ishmael Hanayeh traveled to Cairo on Tuesday to meet with Egyptian officials and discuss Gaza issues. Last week, negotiations between Israel and Hamas stalled, with Hamas calling for a comprehensive ceasefire and an Israeli withdrawal from Gaza, which Israel's leadership rejects. Egypt has reinforced its border with Gaza, evidenced by reports that it's preparing an area to accommodate displaced Palestinians, though the government has denied making such preparations. Israeli officials have said that Palestinians will not be pushed into Egypt. Hamas also admitted 6,000 of its fighters have died in the war, half of Israel's estimate. Israeli officials on Tuesday denied a report in Saudi-owned news outlet Alaf, claiming that Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar fled Gaza to Egypt via tunnels running under the border, saying that Israel had no information that Sinwar left the Strip. Officials also indicated that the military would renew operations in Gaza City. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 29,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Scott, thank you for the facts on our first story today and for updating us on the situation in the Middle East. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative brought to us by CBS. Israel must be able to defend itself under terrorist attacks, whether from Gaza or elsewhere. And the U.S. will always support Israel in maintaining its security. However, Netanyahu is going too far with the war in Gaza and he must be willing to follow through on his promises and compromise as needed so that another extended truce can take effect, which will hopefully lead to a more permanent resolution in this conflict. 
the Biden administration is losing his patience with Netanyahu's intransigence. And the second in our quartet of spins is the pro-Israel narrative from Jerusalem Post. Israel will always be thankful for the U.S.'s steadfast support, but President Joe Biden needs to take a step back from his criticisms of Israel's prime minister. Netanyahu is a complicated figure, and Biden has a re-election campaign to worry about, which has created understandable tension between the two. However, Biden must understand that he should be pressuring Hamas terrorists who have not made a single positive step in finding a compromise, instead of Israel. Israel will pursue its goals, which are incredibly popular with its citizens, regardless of whether it annoys Washington. We're going to continue the round of spins with a pro-Palestine narrative. It's brought to us by The Nation. As Israel's slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza continues unabated, the Biden administration, increasingly anxious over the upcoming election, has resorted to cheap tactics to deny its support for Israel's brutal campaign. Regardless of how the administration tries to spin it, Biden has armed Israel, given it diplomatic cover, and refused to call for a permanent ceasefire, all of which incentivizes continued bloodshed. Indeed, Israel's war on Gaza would be unsustainable without U.S. support, and Biden should enact concrete policy to stop the violence. And a nerd narrative from our friends at Metaculus, they predict a 2% chance that a shared power arrangement will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. I tell you what, from the smallest cocktail party to the biggest international relations, the rules are consistent. Don't talk about the trouble in the Holy Land. This is a, just a disaster for Biden uh, to have to wade into these waters because you can't oh. win. You know, no, you, it, it, it's a disaster politically. It, it, and it's and of course, it's being set up right for election. Time. It, it, it couldn't be a worse bear trap. And there is no way to handle it correctly. There's criticism any which way you just any which no, way I, you do it. It's just I know the, how you hand, I, I got to figure out thing. how you handle it. I know how you do it. You know, we need we need China Let's, to throw it. We need a spy balloon. Oh, yes. Spy yes, balloon. we need a distraction. Spy That's balloon. a good idea. You, you still have that weather balloon we were messing with, Scott? Yeah. We need, a, we need a common enemy. Like in Independence Day, the aliens came and the world came together. That's what, that's what Biden needs is a, uh, someone to blow the White House up with a huge a UFO. Maybe, maybe yeah. we'll get lucky and there'll be like a, a Sasquatch attack or something. All the Sasquatches oh, yeah, yeah, are, are going to get together and they're going to have a multi-pronged attack on the U.S. Sasquatches oh. unite. Oh, Sasquatches and Yetis finally, uh, yeah. finally put yeah, their yeah, differences aside. So, like aside. you know, in the in the the, the central Santa Cruz mountains, and uh, there'll be there'll be Sasquatches there, and then out of Oregon, and then you know the Midwest. You know, a I lot mean, of I'm Sasquatches. For it. It's a you, you want to talk about attack. something? I would be glued to the news. You know, we we read a lot of news here. That would be a story that oh, I'd be ready for. I'd love yeah. to do the daily Sasquatch report. Yeah, we got our Sasquatch roundup. Yeah. <laughs> And the and pro the Yetis. Bigfoot narrative. <laughs> Leaders in the House of Representatives announce a bipartisan AI task force. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, FedScoop, the Office of Speaker Mike Johnson, Fox News, Spectrum News One, and U.S. News and World Report. House Speaker Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana, and Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat from New York, announced on Tuesday that they are forming a bipartisan task force to explore how Congress should deal with artificial intelligence, or AI, as lawmakers grapple with regulating the emerging technology. The new group will have 24 members, 
with 12 from each party and will be led by Representatives Jay Obernolte, the Republican from California, and Representative Ted Lieu, the Democrat from California. The task force will focus on how the U.S. can continue leading the world in AI innovation while also exploring safety mechanisms. In a statement released Tuesday, Speaker Johnson said advancements in AI, quote, have the potential to rapidly transform our economy and our society. Jeffries said that, quote, Congress has the responsibility to facilitate the promising breakthroughs of AI and to ensure equitable benefits. U.S. lawmakers have been vocal about their desire to pass bills governing the rapidly evolving technology. As last year's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Democrat from New York, promised an AI legislative framework, but the plan has not advanced since being announced months ago. Schumer has hosted a series of AI forums that featured industry leaders. The emergence of OpenAI and Altman's plea for regulation prompted a wave of discussions, including President Joe Biden's executive order announcing commitments for AI leaders to follow. Issues surrounding generative AI received attention after a fake robocall imitating Biden urged people not to vote in the New Hampshire Democratic primary. This prompted the Federal Communications Commission to ban AI-created robocalls. All right, Adam, thanks for that uh, techno update. We have an establishment-critical narrative from Colorado Springs Gazette. As lawmakers in the U.S., as well as the rest of the world, grapple with the mind-boggling potential of AI, it's fair to question how regulation could be enacted and if it's even possible. From executive orders to congressional bills and bureaucratic rulings, every power center has tried to get a grip on AI for nearly a year. The complex world of AI is still evolving, and there are many factors that make it difficult for Congress or any other group to enact meaningful safeguards. That's going to be countered with the pro-establishment narrative. It's brought to us by the office of Congressman Ted Lieu. The House's newly created AI task force is a bipartisan coalition that is comprised of the body's most experienced representatives who have backgrounds in artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies. Dealing with rapidly evolving technology such as AI is no easy task, but Congress is deeply committed to understanding AI and promoting policies that will promote the technology's benefits while mitigating its threats. This is a moment of both political parties rising to the occasion together. And there's a nerd narrative on this story from the Metaculous Prediction community. They predict a 90% chance that the U.S. will pass legislation that requires cybersecurity around AI models before 2030. You know, Adam, part of me is frustrated that they haven't passed any kind of AI legislation yet. It's been months. But on the other hand... It moves so fast that whatever legislation they would have passed six months ago would have been out of date already. So, yeah, it's, so it's, where are it, we? It's almost like you have to pass legislation for what you think AI might accomplish 10 years down the road. You know what would help them come to a quicker decision on these things is using AI to make the legislation. That's the only way. Uh, Chat GPT, um, yeah. please write up a bill banning you. The Supreme Court declines to hear Trump's legal allies appeal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, The Hill, CNN, and Reuters. The U.S. Supreme Court has declined to hear an appeal by attorney Sidney Powell, who was among a group of lawyers who were fined over $150,000 by a Michigan court for attempting to file an election fraud case regarding the 2020 presidential election. 
In November 2020, Powell and fellow attorney Lynn Wood, among others, sued Michigan state officials and the city of Detroit over alleged election fraud. Their case was thrown out by U.S. District Court Judge Linda Parker, who then issued the sanctions. Judge Parker ordered Powell and the others to pay a total of over $175,000 to the state and the city. However, a federal appeals court subsequently lowered the amounts to about $132,000 for the state and $19,000 for the city. Wood, who was forced to give up his legal license as part of a 2020-related disciplinary case, had argued that while his name was on the lawsuit as one of the attorneys, he never signed the document. Besides the legal fee reimbursements to the state and the city, Parker also ordered the attorneys to take legal education classes and referred them to disciplinary authorities for investigation and possible suspension or disbarment. The Supreme Court has also declined to hear another case in which the Wisconsin state government tried, but failed, to impose similar sanctions on Powell and others. Wow, thank you, Scott. The Supreme Court's not hearing any of that. We're going to start our round of spins on this story with an anti-Trump narrative provided by CBS. The Michigan court system rightly punished Powell and her associates for trying to bring a completely unfounded claim to trial. The judicial system is not a place to spread dangerous conspiracies, which is why the district court sanctioned them and the appeals court upheld the decision. Any lawyer who wishes to politicize the courts will now think twice. And the pro-Trump narrative from Town Hall. While Powell has been turned into a conspiracy theorist caricature by the left, the truth is that election integrity is an issue in 2020 and going forward. The problem is that Powell attempted to broaden the scope of the case too much with too little time. The amount of evidence needed to bring such a case is very difficult, as shown by Powell's unfortunate failure to do so. All right, I get to tell you about a nerd narrative. The Metaculous Prediction community think that there's a 20% chance that any state will refuse to certify its election results during the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Chugging the Diet Dr. Pepper. You've seen those? Oh, was she? I didn't. Was was she actually? I didn't. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a thing that Seth Meyers was never back in. I'll tell you what. Of all anyway. the sodas, you could do a lot worse than Diet Dr. Pepper. That's <laughs> but she, it really does taste she, she, more she, like she regular really Dr. Loved Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Anyway, if I I'm could sorry. only have one soda, I would probably go Diet Coke just because it goes with more things. But in terms of how good the actual soda is, Diet Dr. Pepper is pretty dang good. Yeah, I'm currently into uh, vanilla, cherry vanilla, zero sugar Coke. What you can't find good. in the stores, though, is the uh, orange vanilla. Diet zero sugar Coke, orange vanilla. That sounds pretty good too. And you you're, that, have, and you, you're have, a, you done the, have you done the Coke dispensers? You know the uh, the, the freestyles. Yeah, the fi- the ones, like exactly. Five guys. Yeah, you can do. That's where you can do the orange. And I've seen them in cans before. Did you know that the guy that invented those free, you know, those freestyle machines? What are they? Ten years old at yeah, this point. Roughly, still, yeah. still a nice novelty when you see them. Um, yes. The guy that invented those, he's this crazy, like, fluid science genius. And he said, I want to, he invented something to help get water to villages in Africa and deepest Africa, deserts and things like that. But it cost money to implement. So he went to Coca-Cola and was like, you're the only people that have any kind of infrastructure to get water to these people. Can you help me get my device out there? And they're like, well... What can you do for us? And he's like, right. I'll invent the best soda machine ever. And then, but in return, you'll get my water facilities out to these villages. And he did, and they did. And that's, that's why amazing. 
that we have those extra good machines. Australia will build its biggest navy since World War II. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, France 24, Nikkei Asia, Inquirer.net, and Al Jazeera. Australia has announced plans to spend over $35 billion over the next decade to build what will be its largest navy since World War II. This comes after an independent review found that the country currently maintains the oldest fleet in Australian history. The Royal Australian Navy plans to double its fleet size. It will then have six hunter-class frigates, 11 general-purpose frigates, three air warfare destroyers, and six warships that don't require human manpower. Australian Deputy Prime Minister Richard Malls on Tuesday referred to, quote, an uncertain world in terms of a great power contest where his country must have a, quote, dramatically different capability. Malls' comments come as both China and Russia have increased their presence in the Indo-Pacific alongside increased friction between the powers and the U.S.-led allies. Australia plans to buy at least three U.S. nuclear submarines, even if its defense spending rises to 2.4% of its GDP, higher than the benchmark 2% set by Australia's NATO allies. Australia's opposition lawmakers have criticized the plan, saying its timeline falls short of the country's needs and that finding enough personnel for the expansion will prove problematic. Thanks for that update, Adam. We have a Narrative A on this story from The Conversation. Australia undoubtedly has a major naval problem to solve, from worn-out vessels and spiraling costs of delayed projects to a shortage of manpower. The country must solve a host of issues to be ready for future conflicts. Its mega-plan is a step in the right direction, but given chronic personnel shortfalls, there's no certainty that Australia's naval revolution will be a success. Spin's going to continue with a Narrative B provided by Guardian. Australia's naval shakeup announcement comes shortly after a defense review last year pointed to a gaping hole in its strategic capabilities. To that extent, the so-called Australianization of its capabilities and the expansion of its shipbuilding muscle is a welcome step to Canberra. It will accelerate Australia's move towards becoming a world-class naval power in the Indo-Pacific giving its allies more confidence in its capabilities of a dramatically evolving strategic theater. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 50% chance that Australia will commission its first nuclear-powered submarine by May of 2038. Just in time for the end of the world. That's what yeah. I hear anyways. A salesperson came by my house the other day and offered us, hey, you should get solar panels. They'll pay for themselves. And I said, okay, well, that sounds pretty good. What's the time frame? It was some crazy 70 year, you know, I, I, mm -hmm. I won't, just to break even, I'm going to be dead, you know, like if I'm lucky. <laughs> so, and that's if we keep the house, you know, every single thing. And plus you got to take out a loan with them. And then if you sell the house while you have a solar lien on your house, that complicates every, it's a crazy, yeah, you hear yeah. about these people have these solar quagmires. Basically, if you sell your house, you just got to pay it all off up front because it's going to yeah. be such a quagmire. So, yeah. So I, I said no, but uh, I thanked him for his time. A trainee doctor's walkout disrupts the South Korean healthcare sector. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the New York Times, BBC News, and NBC News. More than half of South Korea's 13,000 trainee doctors submitted letters of resignation Monday 
in protest against the government's proposal to increase the number of medical students by 2,000 next year. According to the health ministry, 1,630 of them had walked off the job. While Korean doctors are some of the highest paid in the world, the country is also dealing with the second lowest doctor-to-people ratios among the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, countries, with 2.5 per 1,000. The protesting trainees argue that if the government increased medical school enrollment by the proposed 65%, it would lead to overtreatment and more competition. They claim the shortage in emergency care is due to harsh working conditions and low wages for interns and residents. President Yoon Suk Yul said there were already postponed cancer surgeries, with up to 37% of doctors reportedly at risk of being affected by the strike. The government on Tuesday also threatened legal action against the strikers, including revoking their medical licenses. While a Gallup poll found that about 76% of Koreans support the government's plan, doctors and medical student groups believe it would also hurt the national health insurance plan. South Korean officials are projecting a doctor deficit of 10,000 by 2035 if student enrollment doesn't increase. The previous administration proposed an admissions jump of 4,000 over 10 years, but the plan was halted due to a month-long doctor strike. Thank you for the facts, Scott. We're going to start the spins with the Narrative A provided by the Hank Yore. South Korea's doctors' unions are effectively holding their ailing patients hostage to stop a public policy favored by the vast majority of the population. 76 to 90 percent of people support the increase in medical students. The proposal is in line with other major economies working to meet the needs of their aging populations. The striking doctors are not focused on the needs of the patients here. We have a narrative B from Business Insider. The current labor shortage isn't taking place throughout the entire medical field, but rather a select number of specialty fields that endure uniquely low wages and 80-hour work weeks. The proposed increase in medical students won't help with this shortage. It will continue to bring wages down for struggling doctors while also lowering the quality of education at medical schools. We're going to wrap this spin up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 10% chance that North Korea and South Korea will be recognized as a single sovereign state by 2045. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I don't know. Where do you come in on this, Adam? I mean, is a Hippocratic Oath preclude someone, a doctor, from striking? Or is it just a necessary part of the business of the business? Well, nobody works for free, Scott. That's true. I, sure, I certainly don't. I'm about, I'm about sure to walk don't. off but, this podcast. Let me right? tell you that right I, now. Yeah. I, aren't we still doing that strike three days from now? Is that supposed to happen? Shh. Oh, guys, I'm sorry. Recent news out of Guinea, where military leaders have dissolved the government. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Arise News, and Fox News. Guinea's military junta, which took power in a coup in 2021, said it has dissolved the government. It also froze the bank accounts of government ministers and ordered them to hand in their passports and official vehicles. The announcement was made via a pre-recorded video in which the presidency's Secretary General Brigadier General Amara Kamara conveyed the message while armed and masked soldiers stood beside him. However, he didn't explain why the military made the decision. Kamara also announced that lower-level government officials will take over the ministries until the junta has been handed full power. Soldiers have also been ordered to, quote, seal all national borders until the takeover is complete. 
the military ousted former President Alpha Conde, the West African nation's first democratically elected leader, in September of 2021, with Colonel Mamadé Doumbouya had taking his place. This came after Conde attempted to create a new constitution to allow him to run for a third term. Dumbuya said he was saving the country from chaos when he took power, but has since been criticized for making no difference. The Regional Bloc of Western African Nations, or ECOWAS, has recently pushed the military to return power to civilian rule, with elections scheduled for 2025. Thanks, Adam. The Center for Strategic and International Studies brings us a pro-establishment narrative. Former President Condi's attempt to create a new constitution was a sad state of affairs especially due to it resulting in a military coup. Regional African bodies have been inconsistent and weak in their enforcement of rules and sanctions, which is likely why Dumbuya has taken so long to pursue his promised return to civilian rule. If West African states like Guinea are going to progress, neighboring states and international partners will have to apply more pressure. Scott Intercept is going to counter that with the establishment critical narrative. When observing all the Western African coups in recent years, It's important to know that before almost all of them, the U.S. military had been training the same men that later overthrew their governments. U.S. Green Berets were training Mamadé Dumbuya in the summer of 2021, during which he and his men took a break from the course and violently overthrew the president. The U.S. Department of State and the Pentagon should be questioned about these conveniently timed coups. (laughs) <laughs> That's using your off time constructively, and you could study for the test or overthrow the government. That's uh, it sounds like it sounds like a Pentagon hobby, almost like they yeah. you know looking for uh, this like the softball team. You're right, right. Yeah, they got a couple <laughs> ringers. Yeah, you think yep. they had a t- they had T-shirts made. I mean, honestly, yes. With a name I do, like I do, Dumbu- I do. with a name like Dumbuya, how could you not? Yeah. Did you hear the new Major League Baseball jerseys? Nike took over making them this year and they just came out, you know, spring training starting. Apparently yeah. they're they're no good. Like it's all oh, they're no. all crummy. Yeah. Oh, like like material wise? Yeah, the material's no good. The designs are all the same. You know, it's the same design. It's just a mm-hmm. different, you know, templating and lettering and slightly different. Yeah. And it's all bad. And you know, major league baseball jerseys, they those are pretty bulletproof. You know, those things are typically pretty nice, like a, a real one. And apparently they're no good. I'm sure it's all cost-cutting or something weird, but yeah. yeah. Nice going, Nike. The widow of Haiti's slain president is among dozens indicted. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, The Washington Post, France 24, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and NPR Online News. A judge in Haiti has indicted 51 individuals for their alleged roles in the 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moïse including his widow, Martine, who has been charged with conspiracy to murder despite being shot in her hand and elbow during the attack. Among those charged are former Prime Minister Claude Joseph and Haitian National Police Captain Leon Charles, who now serves as the country's permanent delegate to the Organization of the American States. The indictment, which does not detail the motive for the assassination and how it was financed, relies on the testimony of former Justice Ministry official Joseph Felix Badillo, who is currently in custody on allegations of helping to mastermind the killing. In response to these charges, a lawyer for Martine claimed that his client, whose whereabouts are unknown, was a victim along with her husband and children. Joseph alleged that his successor, Prime Minister Ariel Henry, 
is weaponizing the Haitian justice system to persecute him and the former first lady. Henri, who had close ties to a key suspect, has denied any involvement in the assassination or interference in the investigation. A concurrent probe in the U.S. has prompted federal charges against 11 people for conspiring to kill Moise, not implicating Martine or Joseph. President Moise was shot dead on the night of July 7, 2021, after armed men stormed into his bedroom in Port-au-Prince, allegedly as part of a conspiracy to replace him with Haitian-American pastor Christian Emmanuel Sanan. Scott, the spins for the story are going to begin with a narrative A provided by Haiti Libre. There was a classic coup d'etat underway in Haiti right now, as Prime Minister Henri takes advantage of the country's corrupt justice system to unjustly persecute his opponents. It's Henri himself who benefited the most from the killing of Moise, and all too coincidentally, he had telephone contact with Bandio the night of the murder. And the Miami Herald brings us narrative B. While Prime Minister Henri has been accused of being complicit in the killing, and now using the state machinery to advance his agenda, it's undeniably strange that Martine told people in the National Palace just two days after the death of her husband that Moise hadn't done anything for us in office and that she wanted to succeed him with the help of Claude Joseph. The nerds think that there's a 66% chance that Haiti will experience a successful coup d'etat before 2040, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Capital One is going to be acquiring Discover in a $35 billion mega-merger. Here are the facts facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Business Insider, CNBC, MSN, Bloomberg, and Yahoo Finance. Capital One Financial has reached an agreement to acquire Discover Financial Services in a $35.3 billion deal that merges two of the largest credit card companies in the U.S., The Wall Street Journal first reported the deal, which will give Discover shareholders 1.0192 Capital One shares for every Discover share, a premium of about 27% based on Discover's $110.49 closing price on Friday. The deal will likely take a year to be finalized, and the companies said they expect the deal to close in late 2024 or early 2025. Once complete, Capital One shareholders will hold a 60% share in the combined company, with current Discover investors holding the remaining 40%. The ninth largest bank in the U.S., Capital One, is looking to expand its already prominent role in the credit card issuing sector by acquiring Discover. Capital One says it will keep the Discover brand on cards and networks after the merger. The pending agreement is the largest global merger this year. Beating out Synopsys Inc.'s $34 billion buy of software developer Ansys Inc. Additionally, the newly combined company will pass JP Morgan Chase and Company and Citigroup Inc. as the largest credit card company by loan volume. Regulators are expected to heavily scrutinize the agreement, and approval is not a foregone conclusion. The Biden administration has challenged several high profile mergers and was successful in court last month when a judge nixed a deal for JetBlue to acquire Spirit Airlines. All right, thanks for that financial update, Adam. We have a Narrative A from Fortune magazine. The merger between Capital One and Discover is yet another victory for the U.S.'s largest banks and lenders and another loss for consumers and competition. 
As millions of Americans drown in credit card debt, the leaders of two industry giants struck a deal that will only grow their wealth and stranglehold on the U.S. economy. Perhaps regulators will intervene and stop this mega company from forming, but it's tough to rein in these corporations that have captured so many people. Bloomberg's going to continue with a narrative B. Companies have an obligation to deliver profits to their shareholders, and large mergers and acquisitions have been a core part of the American economy for years. Both Capital One and Discover reached a beneficial agreement that will help their shareholders and customers allow them to offer enhanced services. It's also important to remember that both of these companies have been dealing with inflation and other economic troubles over the past few years, so this deal is very important on many grounds. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 48% chance that the U.S. household debt to GDP will surpass 100% before 2033. So where, do, where does Discover rank on your credit card power rankings? Oh, I, I, I owed them money, and they're persistent when you owe them money. See, <laughs> American Express is my favorite because they're the best at getting your money back when something yeah. doesn't happen. So, so, I, so I used to do ticketing for sports teams. Yeah. And whenever someone made a dispute and it was and we saw that three in the first number, which is American Express, yeah. you knew they were getting their money back. Because American oh, Express totally. don't, yeah, don't got play. Good, good customer they just, protection. They just pull it back. And they, yeah. they don't it's innocent until proven guilty. You know, they just they just pull it back and then we would just know it was over. You know, like that's yeah. we don't even try. <laughs> so with that knowledge, I would go with I use an American Express when I buy stuff in case I have some kind oh, of for problem. safety sake. Yeah, of but uh, but they're also like they're pretty strict on getting there. You know, they're kind of strict all around. They're the Arlie Ermy of uh, credit cards. China's homegrown airliner makes its international debut. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Financial Express, Al Jazeera, CNN, Channel News Asia, CGTN, and Reuters. The C-919, China's first domestically produced passenger jet, made its maiden flight outside the PRC on Sunday when it conducted a flyby at the Singapore Air Show. Chinese regulators have approved the twin-engine narrow-body aircraft that the Commercial Aircraft Corporation of China built, and it can reportedly carry 158 to 192 passengers. The C-919 jetliner, which can travel up to 3,500 miles, is reportedly designed for high-altitude plateaus and is expected to compete with Boeing 737 MAX and the Airbus A320. Four C919s have been flying with China Eastern Airlines since last May. While the company is said to have received over 1,000 orders, including 40 from Tibet Airlines on Tuesday. According to PRC state-run media, the China Eastern Airlines C919 fleet has docked over 2,200 flight hours, completed 655 commercial trips, and flown nearly 82,000 passengers as of December 31, 2023. The C919's international debut comes at a time when both Airbus and Boeing reportedly struggle to ramp up production to meet demand, and China's aviation authority gets closer to receiving European Union Aviation Safety Agency validation for its homegrown aircraft. Thank you, Scott. The spin's going to continue with the pro-China narrative provided by Global Times. The C919 is a prominent symbol of Beijing's broader, quote, made-in-China strategy and is the PRC's answer to Western-made Airbus and Boeing. It will not only break the dominant plane maker's hold on the international passenger market and make COMAC the third competitor in the global aviation sector, but also help advance the PRC's footprint worldwide, reduce its reliance on foreign technology, 
challenge the U.S. dominance of China's market and strengthen Beijing's position as an aviation hub. And the Japan Times brings us the anti-China narrative. The fact that the aircraft is only authorized to fly in the PRC and relies on international supply chains makes it far-fetched to suggest that Beijing's homegrown C919 could challenge Airbus and Boeing. Moreover, besides cost and production issues, rising tensions between Beijing and Washington could make it difficult for COMAC to get certification from the U.S. and European regulators and penetrate international markets. With the capacity to fly between five and six hours, the C919 is, at best, perfect for regional travel. The Metaculous Prediction community is going to wrap up this spin with a nerd narrative. They think there's a 16% chance that there will be a commercial service to travel between London and New York City in under three hours before 2030. In our final story today, it seems that the largest COVID vaccine study finds that there are links to the health conditions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Vaccine, The Washington Times, Daily Mail, Global Vaccine Data Network, and GB News. The most comprehensive study of COVID vaccine safety published last week in the journal Vaccine has found that jabs that offer protection against severe illness, death, and long COVID symptoms were linked to slight increases in neurological blood and heart conditions. For their study, researchers from the Global Vaccine Data Network observed the expected rates of 13 different medical conditions among over 99 million individuals across eight countries for up to 42 days following their vaccination. The viral vector-based AstraZeneca vaccine was found to have been associated with a rare blood clot disorder, as well as an increase in cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome while the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna reportedly caused a slight increase in heart inflammation. Although the study couldn't find that the vaccines caused the health conditions, it discovered that the jabs may have triggered myocarditis and pericarditis when producing antibodies against the spike protein attached to the coronavirus. One of eight studies in the Global COVID Vaccine Safety Project the research received financial assisting totaling more than $100 million from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Though about 13.5 billion doses of COVID vaccines have been administered globally, their adverse effects reportedly remain relatively low. Additionally, the study didn't monitor for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome which is allegedly linked to the COVID vaccines. All right, thanks, Adam. We have a Narrative A from the Gateway Pundit. This study has validated widespread concerns about potential side effects stemming from the experimental jabs people were coerced to take during the pandemic amid calls to trust the science, showing that these so-called conspiracy theorists were right to question the safety of COVID vaccines. Uh, the spin's going to continue with a Narrative B provided by Fox News. Given that side effects aren't exclusive to shots against COVID, it's always essential to analyze the risk and benefits of getting vaccinated or a booster jab. The study validates that vaccine-related risks, which have previously drawn controversy and problems in relation to public health, are extremely rare, with adverse and more severe effects more probable to stem from infection than vaccination. And Narrative C comes from the New York Times. The publication of this report risks heightening vaccine hesitancy rather than addressing it. 
Although there was good initial uptake of COVID vaccines, medical professionals have observed widespread hesitation about subsequent updated doses, making it all the more crucial to encourage confidence in the preventative treatment. Nuanced reporting of this kind is beneficial for the scientific community's understanding, but the specificity of continuing hesitancy about COVID jabs over other sorts of vaccines suggests more must be done to stem the spread of misinformation. The nerds are going to have the last word today. They think that there's a 50% chance that the U.S. FDA and CDC will recommend at least six SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccine doses for at least 15% of the U.S. on December 31st of 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Interesting narrative C there. The New York Times lobbying against nuanced reporting. I get what they're saying, but that's, ah, man, that's dangerous. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, February 21st, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. I'd like to dedicate today's episode to my mother, Linda Margie Clark, born November 20th, 1946. She passed away this morning, February 20th at 1220 a.m. Love you, Mom.